My name is Shannon Beer. I am a nutrition coach and educator interested in the consilience of knowledge across disciplines, including science, psychology, philosophy, art and literature. The goal of this podcast is to bridge those disciplines and explore different perspectives in order to gain a greater understanding of myself, others and the world around us. Enjoy the show. Today I am joined by Dr. Georgie Buckley, who is an accredited dietitian from Melbourne, and she has extensive experience working with eating disorder populations in sports nutrition, and she is particularly passionate about eating disorder prevention and inclusive healthcare, specifically in healthcare settings where weight stigma and oppressive power imbalances are involved. And last year, Georgie completed her PhD, where she explored the conceptualization of disordered eating in current and former athletes and advocated for the awareness of eating disorders in sporting cultures. And I thought that I would have a chat with Dr. Georgie today to discuss this in a little bit more detail, because from my perspective, from the inside of the the fitness industry, it does seem to be the case that a lot of disordered eating behaviors are normalized and perhaps unintentionally but sometimes encouraged or at least facilitated by doing what it takes to make it um, happen in your sport. So I thought we could start off by firstly like defining the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders um, and then going from there and exploring how this manifests in the athletic population because correct me if I'm wrong but I'm under the impression that eating disorders are actually more common in the athletic population than they are in the general population. Um, so maybe we can go go from there. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today talking about probably my number one favorite topic to talk about. And I feel like I have to have such restraint in these conversations because I could just talk for days and days. And as anyone who's been in sport or as a former athlete or a junior athlete or a parent or a supporter, just knows how important this topic is and I know for me as well I am a former athlete and used to take my distance running incredibly seriously I've I've lived all of this as well as practicing um you know seeing clients but also my PhD was this exact topic as well so it's obviously so important to me and yeah you're totally correct that Eating disorders in current athletes and now we know former athletes are higher than they are in any other population group, Um, you know, just the general population, which is really concerning because when we talk about athletes or when they're often in the media, you know, that kind of conversation never really comes up. If anything, it's almost like we, we validate anything an athlete does even if it's disordered or not, we validate it as almost like the pillar of health um, based on what they can do with their bodies and the kind of performance that they can create. So it would be really awesome, I think, you know, and, and having these discussions now is giving us an ability to have language and have conversations that we can transform the conversation. And most importantly, we can shape cultures in sport that, you know, make sure that these kind of things also don't happen that sport is this you know it has such a capacity to be a place where body confidence and body acceptance and body positivity are actually 
emphasized and encouraged as opposed to being such a strong risk factor for an eating disorder. Um, so that's a bit of an overview, I guess, of the topic and, and getting straight to the point, the difference on eating disorders and disordered eating, I think is also really important to understand when we are exploring a whole food and body relationship. So I like to imagine our relationship with food or our relationship with our body, so our body image, really it runs across a spectrum. So on one side, we've got intuitive eating, which is the ab ability for our body to really naturally and spontaneously and be able to adapt to a changing appetite and to be able to eat foods, not just for fuel, but to eat foods for enjoyment and pleasure and social connection and just, you know, for the hell of it, just because food is awesome and it can taste really great. Um, and we've also got on that side of the spectrum where intuitive eating lies, we've also got body acceptance. So it's not even necessarily about loving your thighs or loving your stomach or loving your body, but it's actually just acknowledging and validating that this is the body that you have and that's okay and that's enough. And that's really what body acceptance is about. As simple as it sounds, it's a really hard place to get to, but it is possible. And then on the other side of this spectrum, right on the other side is where we would find eating disorders. Um, so what an eating disorder is, is it's a preoccupation with food and our body shape or weight, so much so that it consumes a really, really big part of our life. And that's, that's it. That's an eating disorder. Um, over the years and over the decades, what we've defined, I guess, really specifically that eating disorder to be has changed a lot. And my hope for the future is that it continues to change because I think the ideas of what we've had around eating disorders have excluded a lot of people from care and stigmatised what we think an eating disorder looks like or presents like. Um, so... An eating disorder at the moment, you know, to receive a formal diagnosis is a privilege because it means that you fit kind of into this cookie cutter diagnosis of what it looks like. And if you've got access to a medical doctor, a psychiatrist or some kind of health professional that can give you that diagnosis um, is a great privilege. And many people don't often receive that. I because I look back on my own adolescence and some of the things I was struggling with, this comes back full circle to the athlete piece is that my behaviours and my thoughts were just so validated amongst um, a distance running culture that they were just so normalised and I never received a diagnosis, even though I can look back at that time and say that's absolutely what I was experiencing. Um, so back to our spectrum of... Uh, our food relationship as well so eating disorders you know um, often look like they may look like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder but actually most commonly out of any eating disorder is the one called ednos which is basically the quote-unquote other category which means that you don't quite fit into any other category so that's actually more often than not where we find people fall into. So it really speaks volumes about the kind of diagnostic criteria that we have at the moment and how inclusive or exclusive it is. 
Um, and then coming back to our spectrum again, just below our eating disorder space, that's where we have disordered eating. So just with any other spectrum, we can move up and down across our entire life, depending on just our circumstances. So we can quite easily travel between an eating disorder and disordered eating over periods of a month or periods of a week or years or whatever it is, as we can travel from disordered eating to intuitive eating or even just somewhere in between that has a bit of everything. So disordered eating is kind of the, the subclinical state. So it's often not quite fitting the picture of an eating disorder. It's not quite consuming, you know, the majority of your life. You might be able to, you know, go a few weeks without being obsessed with food or you might be able to go a few days without it or you might have symptoms that kind of come and go or they might align particularly with, you know, a certain training period or um, a competition period or they come about when you're really stressed in your job, those kind of things. So it's a lot more transient and it's able to change and adapt um, much more than an eating disorder is just kind of it's there and it's stable and it's with you and it's really, really hard to shift. Um, so disordered eating, I, I think, is a really important term to be able to, to label and know what it is as well so that we can have discussions with people around us about what it looks like, what it sounds like, and that way we're going to be able to prevent eating disorders really when we're understanding what disordered eating is like. Mm, I really like how you've illustrated it um, in terms of a spectrum and acknowledging the fact that individual athletes can move along the spectrum um, at any point in time. And this may coincide with life stress, but it also could coincide with different training cycles and different periods of um, like competition versus like preparation. Um, and that's something to be very aware of as well. So with the types of like thoughts and behaviors and patterns that we're speaking of, what might that look like if someone is starting to display some of the signs of disordered eating that may go on to progress to an eating disorder? What would that look like? Yeah, okay. So some of, I guess, some of the things are, we're going to notice them by what they look like or what they might observe to look like. But the thing with an eating disorder is because it's a mental illness, even the subclinical state of disordered eating, so much of it is actually happening in your mind. So it's something that often we think we can spot. We can say that person is small bodied and it looks like maybe they don't eat enough or blah, blah, blah. We might make assumptions about someone, but really the truth with an eating disorder is they're so tricky because they can develop over years because it's not necessarily something we do see. I think the best person to judge whether someone is struggling with their food and body relationship is the individual. So when food or your body image is starting to consume more than, honestly, more than 1% of your day's thoughts, I'd say that's significant in itself. And that can be really subtle in ways where, you know, you might find you're sitting in front of the mirror and having some really negative thoughts for long periods of time or even, you know, long period of time is a minute or two minutes or something. Or 
you're putting on clothes and your negative self-talk is really ramping up or you're in a supermarket and you just find it so overwhelming to even choose what it is that you're going to eat or it might look like you know eating out with friends you might be able to eat exactly what everyone else is eating but you're bringing a consciousness to the rest of the day around what you're doing and you're planning for that and you might be eating less in the case of athletes particularly some of the ways that I think are really interesting that it, it might show up for someone is when someone is perhaps thinking about the calories or the energy or whatever that they're burning while they're training or even when they're competing. Um, they might be someone who's started to really worry about what they look like when they're competing or training, um, or they might be comparing their bodies quite frequently to other athletes. They might be elite athletes or they might be their own peers and finding issues with their own body um, that, are, that are different and feeling like they need to change that or feeling like they need to quote unquote eat healthier to change their body or control their body. Um, it also feels like you know not being able to eat freely or feeling like you don't have that sense of control if you're not if you if your rules aren't in place around your eating. So say if you don't eat after X period of time because you know that you'll binge eat, you know, that's disordered eating because, the, you know, that can be discussed, it can be unpacked, it's not your fault and it's coming from somewhere. Um, I think also like having really high standards and lots of pressure that comes with that around, um, you know, your food and body relationship or, you know, food is conditional to the exercise or the movement or the amount of energy that you've burnt in that day. So I think there are lots of examples of ways that it can show up. And I think, you know, with an eating disorder, we would expect lots of those symptoms at any one time, whereas disordered eating, it could be one of those things that's showing up in our life. And we can identify that and say that's a disordered eating aspect that our mind is occupying or our food relationship or our body relationship has changed in some way and we can name that as disordered eating and I think that can be really powerful um, especially as diet culture in our world and in sport and all these different places is becoming so um, able to adapt and change and become really sneaky I think if we're noticing changes in our thoughts and our own behaviors and even our beliefs that's when we can I guess you know, look inwards and have that honest discussion and, and know that it's okay to struggle with these things. Know that it's really, really normal for people to go through periods of time like this and not be afraid to reach out for help and seek professional support if, if that is something that people can access or seeking out any kind of eating disorder support. There's, you know, there's lots of kind of free programs or free information on eating disorders that exist out there on the internet as well. I think that's the really tricky thing is that these disordered eating or eating disordered behaviors aren't and cognitions aren't observable necessarily and it's not just as you say like a body type but oh that person certainly has an eating disorder and that person certainly can't have an eating disorder because surely it's only like skinny thin people um, which is clearly not the case but not only that as you highlighted that it really is down to the individual because you could have two individuals 
engaging in the same behavior for totally different reasons so as you say eating out of your friends everyone could be eating the same thing but one person could have been thinking about that all day could be planning to compensate with exercise later whereas another person can enjoy the meal and move on and not think too much about it so on the outside it can all look pretty much the same but be having a totally different impact on the individual and I also believe that mental health literacy is generally pretty low particularly in those individuals who are afflicted so it's very difficult to spot these behaviors or cognitions in yourself um, and that's I think what puts a coach or a trainer um, in a very difficult position because they're not always aware of what's going on in a client or in um, an athlete's mind and you mentioned how diet culture in sport can actually encourage or you know, allow um, some of these behaviors or cognitions to manifest. So if you're a coach or a trainer who isn't in an athlete's head 24 hours a day, what could we be doing on the outside to at least be creating a culture that's more in, uh, conducive to a healthier approach to eating? I love that sentiment of culture and also I think when we acknowledge that we are part of a culture we have a huge ability to shape what that looks like and I think trainers or coaches or people in power positions or people who are making decisions particularly I think it's really important for them to acknowledge the really significant influence that they can have over that culture. I think step one in those people outside of understanding that they have a sense of power in the culture is actually being able to reconcile with their own food and body relationship. So I think developing that mental health literacy is really, really tough because it's not just reading a book and learning the knowledge and saying, great, today's training session is X, Y, Z, and the coach understands the energy systems that it's involved, but they don't have to do it. Whereas I think so much of the mental health space is developing empathy, but also because diet culture is so pervasive in our culture, I think it's unpacking the ways that we contribute to that culture inadvertently. You know, we might be really well intended, but it actually might be contributing to that too. So I think that's what makes it really tough for coaches and trainers and athletes and anyone who shapes culture in sport or, you know, movement settings is that we all have a really significant place to confront our own food and body relationship. Um, what is our body image like? How do we think of our body? And how we think of our body, is that radiating outside of us? So... For example, if a coach is able to create a really positive food relationship, which might look like um, encouraging team meals uh, with a variety of different foods, you know, it might be a picnic one day with lots of cheese and meats and fruits and crackers and different things, or it might be at a pasta restaurant in some other way. Um, or it might be, you know, encouraging people to fuel up before uh, training or a competition and then have some kind of recovery food afterwards. That's what a positive food relationship would look like in terms of that, I guess, influence a coach can have. But if then they are saying, oh, I can't eat this cheese or I can't eat blah or talking about their body in a negative way, 
that's going to impact the culture just as much as their attempts to create a positive food relationship will. So I think that coaches have a really tough role because they are so significant or trainers um, in their athletes' lives in who they are too. So they, I want to acknowledge like the amazing work that coaches do, that tireless work, but I think that's what also makes this eating disorder space so tough is that we need to really appreciate and understand what diet culture is and how it sounds and how we contribute to it. And I think that it shows up in subtle ways. So diet culture in sport, it might show up when we talk about you know, for example, my background in running, talking about like a race weight, you know, or having some kind of specific weight or body composition goal that people are aiming for. It might be putting really undue pressure on someone who already might be struggling with their food and body relationship. Um, you know, diet culture shows up when we talk about, you know, when we're really only interested in what thin people eat or muscular people eat as opposed to what the people who are actually performing well eat. So, for example, in my sport of track and field or athletics, like if you Google what does blah distance runner eat, you'll find so many articles because everyone wants to know what the thin people are eating. But it doesn't matter whether they're the world champion or not, people still want to know what they're eating. Whereas if you look up, what the the throwers or the jumpers or some of the sprinters or the hurdlers or whatever are eating it's much 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 harder particularly the throwers to be like uh oh, they're eating blah because people appreciate their performance but that's how diet culture is showing up because it's not about performance when they want to know what they're eating really um i think another really good example as well it, of something I've observed in the last week since the the Winter Olympics have been on is the commentators talking about women's bodies they haven't been why because for most of the events they're in like big um, jackets and big pants and their bodies are covered and they're still able to fill the time with talking about how amazing they are as athletes Whereas we see with the Summer Olympics, when the bodies are exposed, particularly women and girls, those bodies are really talked about in so many different ways. So I think that example, if you're watching the Winter Olympics and you've watched the Summer Olympics before, just think about how we can reframe the way that we talk about bodies to be about their strength and their performance and their agility and all of those things that are really awesome things that bodies can do as opposed to how someone looks in a crop top or if they quote unquote look like a distance runner or they quote unquote look fit or strong or healthy or all of these things which just don't have looks yeah that's so crazy that you mentioned the difference between the um commentary on the performance or the appearance um depending on whether it's a winter sport or a summer sport where bodies are more exposed and i think that's really important to consider because as far as i'm aware 
there has been sort of the, the rise of like fitness advertising and the objectification of female athletes, like swimsuit models being on the front cover of magazines. And as a result, we're seeing the shift of the body ideal as not necessarily, particularly for women, um, simply being thin, but now a lot more women are beginning to uh, internalize the muscular and lean ideal, which has almost a different sort of set of behaviors or cognitions and I think as you mentioned like the changing um, definitions of disordered eating we're now seeing the um, recognition of muscularity oriented disordered eating and when I learned about this I was kind of like oh shit like this looking at the the questionnaire and some of the items on that I was like this is what we actually encourage a lot of our clients to do so it's like an excessive uh, focus on protein intake for example and when I first you know started learning about nutrition was getting my qualification I was like I don't need to learn about eating disorders because I don't work with that population and then in practice you're like oh no 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 I need to know about eating disorders and disordered eating because whether I'm aware of it or not, I've probably ended up either um, working with people who are somewhere along that spectrum, understanding that we're not, nobody's immune. And actually the more you know about disordered eating or eating disorders, the better able you are to, to help people and recognizing who you can help and who you can't help, but ultimately finding ways to, to get people to where they need to be. And with the, the rise of muscularity oriented disordered eating I think for me that was like an eye-opener because I was like I need to be careful about the type of like content for example I produce because in my nutrition qualification we were encouraged you know make it a graphic about sources of protein and you know protein-based snacks I was like yeah this is helpful for people increase your protein and then thinking about not every damn snack has to have protein in it and I would notice with clients who would be concerned about having carbohydrates on their own as a snack you know, whether it's fruit or a cereal bar and actually in the athletic population with higher energy demands on average than the general population um, may require the inclusion of more energy dense um, foods than we would typically encourage when it comes to a nutrition intervention. And I think this could be a good time to talk about the consequences of underfueling um, in the athletic population and what that, again, what signs we can sort of look out for, what are the, the symptoms of low energy availability and why it's important to address. I'm mm -hmm. so glad you had this moment as well, because I think if you're working with humans, you are working with eating disorders. It just is that rampant. I think in Australia alone, I think it's about a million people have eating disorders. So a million out of 26 million or whatever the population is in Australia at the moment is huge. So if you're working in schools, if you're working in marketing, if you're working in fitness, if you're working in sports, like, you know, sports and fitness particularly going to say way higher rates than that. But in all these other spaces, you even if you don't know someone with an eating disorder or think you know someone with an eating disorder, you absolutely know someone with an eating disorder. It's just that it's, you know, it's a, it's an illness that has so much shame attached to it. So for example, a client of mine was talking about, um, you know, they've, they've lived with their eating disorder for I think 30 years and they've been with their partner for maybe 15 and only in the last few months have they actually told their partner about the eating disorder. 
because it was something that, you know, even in such an intimate relationship, they still didn't know. And that's not uncommon. Um, so I think it's something that we, yeah, we, we need to, it's almost like we need to preemptively create safe spaces because if we don't create safe, safe spaces, we can't ever tell if we're creating harm or not. Um, or, you know, or worse, we're, you know, we're, we're re-triggering things that, or we're turning, you know, people are relapsing or they're, you know, they're spiraling because of cultures that we might be perpetuating. Um, <clears throat> I think another point as well with the, uh, the athletic or muscular kind of ideal too, you know, it, it comes back to that definition of eating disorders and for so long, it's been based on this like drive for thinness and all the thoughts and all the behaviors were based on this desire for thinness. So even one of the main eating disorder scales, the question is um, something like, uh, I wish I had a flat stomach and it's like always, never, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, if that's not, exactly what people are after they can actually get sort of misscored or they don't really get the support that they receive and so the way I like to think about it coming back to almost that spectrum again where one side we've got eating disorders the other side we've got intuitive eating and body acceptance if the opposite to body acceptance is wanting to change your body to be a body that you don't have that's likely to be in that disordered eating, eating disorder territory. So whether it's wanting more muscularity, whether it's wanting thinness, whether it's wanting to change your calves or your thighs or your stomach or any kind of aspect of your body in a way, it, it sits in opposition to being able to accept and just be with your body. Um, and then coming back to your actual question around, I guess, those consequences of underfueling. So this is sort of where the eating disorder space and the sports physiology, sports nutrition space are kind of yet to collide, but it's this sweet spot that I kind of live in and a very select few people around the world that, you know, are really passionate about the eating disorder and sports space is um, a concept called low energy availability. Um, so originally, low energy availability was created, goes back to the 70s where they did these really really awesome probably unethical studies looking back on it now where they controlled people's dietary intake and they restricted it and then they kind of played around whether it was the exercise or whether it was the food that was causing all of these physiological issues so for a bit of feminist theory context as well back probably in the 70s and way earlier too uh, one of the rationales for women and girls not participating in sport or not being allowed to participate in sport was that they thought that they, if they did, if they did running or basketball or whatever the sport was, that physiologically women and girls, they just couldn't handle it. So eventually what they found out in the 70s was that when women and girls were doing it, because they were experiencing so much cultural pressure to be thin, thanks patriarchy, um, then they were doing the sport and then they weren't able to fuel their bodies. They were skipping their periods. So men, I assume, were suspecting that like sport was the problem as opposed to patriarchy and eating disorders and diet culture and all these things that are just not women and girls' fault, which has eventually led to this area of research, which is called low energy availability, which became 
also the female athlete triad in the 90s, which connected the relationship between not eating enough or underfueling to menstrual cycle and to bones. So that was this like beautiful triangle that connected these three aspects, simple to know, um, super, super, super common. So, you know, not eating enough, what are we seeing in female athletes? We're seeing stress fractures, we're seeing stress reactions, but we're also seeing as well like skipped periods or no periods for a period of time or really delayed um, menarche, which is when say, you know, 12, 13 is pretty typical to get your period. So any kind of delay on that is when, um, you know, that can be to do with underfueling as well. So these are some of the consequences, I guess, of underfueling, and it's our body just saying, enough, enough, like I need this energy um, or else I'm going to have to make some, what I say to my clients, it's like your body making budget cuts, saying, well, reproductive function, we don't really need that, do we? I mean, the heart and the lungs and the brain is kind of more important at this stage, so it'll prioritise those and it'll be like, bones, reproductive function, you're all right, but there's more important things here at the moment. Um, building on that as well is in 2014, there was a concept that was introduced called relative energy deficiency in sports. So it really expanded on this female athlete triad using low energy availability um, to say, hey, this affects not just people with ovaries this affects everyone that participates in sport as well so let's rebrand this as reproductive function rather than um, just menstrual cycles so often in um, cis men we see like a low testosterone um, in athletes can be really common a really really common sign of this low energy availability um, and essentially what the concept is, there's this beautiful diagram. If you, if you Google relative energy deficiency in sport, you'll see this beautiful uh, spoken wheel, whatever people call it, um, diagram, which connects all of the 10 concepts, all the different physiological things that are affected when you underfuel. That's also been then linked to all these different performance measures as well. So where we're at today in 2022, we have this really great handle that underfueling and not giving our body enough energy, it, it really compromises our physiological systems. Yes, we might be able to still train at capacity. And yes, we might be able to perform for a period of time, but we know that it actually really significantly affects performance. It might not be happening now, but it will. Mark my words, give it a few weeks, months, that is when sort of the edge of the cliff comes and people's performance drops, stress fractures, it just becomes all too much. Um, yeah, so often, I guess, coming full circle back to eating disorders and disordered eating, lots of those things. So there's a really big overlap there in sport with why people don't eat enough. So with an eating disorder or if there's disordered eating developing because of the culture, those can be things that create those stresses, create that pressure that then people underfuel. Um, I guess I want to say as well with eating disorders um, is that 
if that is something that you're dealing with or if that's something that you find out that you have or you're listening to this podcast and you're going, oh, shit, I think this is something I have, I just want to validate it's not your fault. It is, you know, it's this really interesting mental health illness that unlike, say, anxiety or depression where everyone's in agreement, it's bad, it sucks, we want to get over it, we want to move through it, an eating disorder is the only illness that is actually encouraged and validated by society. So people celebrate sometimes what an eating disorder looks like. And that is why it's not your fault. It's actually just the circumstances, the genetics you have, the personality and temperament you have, um, and things that are largely out of your control. But when it comes down to it, you are able to control getting out of it and recovery and treatment and all of those things are just so possible. Yeah, that's crazy to think that it is um, the only, as you say, disorder that's actually kind of encouraged and validated and rewarded in society. So perhaps this could be a good time to touch on some of the risk factors involved um, and also how an athlete can tell whether they're fueling themselves correctly because again as far as I'm aware with low energy availability that can be sometimes it involves disordered eating probably like it's likely that there's disordered eating involved but not always so uh, an athlete can just be um, you know they're, they're just not meeting their energy demands and I know personally with the training out here in Bali like it's boiling hot when I and I do martial arts when I go to like a Muay Thai class afterwards my appetite is gone and I just eat mechanically because I know I have to and if I don't the consequences you know I don't want those consequences so how can uh, oh and I don't want to ask too many questions at once but it's also feeds into like the role of intuitive eating in um athletes again knowing that sometimes we actually need more energy than we would consciously or even being in tune with hunger and fullness than what we would realize so um, firstly how do we go about um recognizing some of like the risk factors involved and then how do we know whether we're fueling ourselves correctly mm, so risk factor number one is have a body in this culture like that <laughs> is enough <laughs> um you cannot go a day without not being influenced well, not not being exposed in some way to this pervasive diet culture. Um, if you were watching commercial TV ads over uh, news, particularly is kind of the danger zone. Every second one was about weight loss, and so even if we're not like we're watching the ad and we're like, Jenny Craig, like what does she offer me? It's still that subliminal messaging that's saying, well, this adult's body was not okay, and now it is. So it's just over and over and over these messages that you must be able to change your body and you should change your body to be a good person or a good functioning human or whatever it is that we interpret that as, that's a huge risk factor. So just having a body. Um, sport in ways, so sport and movement can make us feel really good about our bodies. So that can be something we can do if it's safe for us or psychologically or physically safe for us to do is engage with those kind of things that make our bodies feel good. So, you know, it doesn't have to be typical kind of movement where I, you see advice, I guess like public health advice 
um, whatever it is, it's a very like they try to be one size fits all and it like never really quite miss, like it never is going to hit the mark for an individual. So moving your body by dancing for five minutes, moving your body by walking around the block and getting a coffee, moving your body by washing the dishes by, I don't know, just any way that you can move your body that feels good to you is good movement and that can create that body acceptance that's it, it reconnects you to your body um whereas you know with sport so sport as it stands at the moment statistically is a risk factor so just participating in sport is a risk factor for eating disorders however the nuance of research is a risk factor isn't necessarily we just stand up and avoid we're like I don't want to get in the eating disorder I'm not going to do sport it's more of a well how can we create almost like a microcosm culture for us and you know that comes with you know even if it's not a whole group of people that are on the same you know on the same wavelength it's having one ally say in your training squad that if something diety is being told to you they'll call it out or vice versa or even if you're not feeling up to calling something out is having a place to debrief with someone to say, oh, that was a little gross, like that this person said that thing um, and being able to reframe it. You know, those things are really protective and will protect you long-term against those kind of things. I think when it comes to sport and exercise and movement as well, like, always know that you have so much choice and agency in the cultures that you participate into. So if a particular training squad or a particular gym just isn't doing it for you, the best news is, is that we're, you know, this message is actually getting around these days. Um, I follow this Pilates and it's a yoga clinic that's in Melbourne now that's popped up and it's fully health at every size. There is no diet chat and they're really strict about this and it's sort of part of their marketing. And that is just beyond exciting that people can go there and have those safe spaces. So, you know, it's it's amazing that that culture is like slowly starting to shift. And even if it's not, you can still create cultures. You still have such a capacity to be able to do those things. Um, so that's vaguely, I guess, the risk factors. What was the second part of that question? It was about how an individual can learn to fuel themselves properly, given that, you know, sometimes low energy availability will come alongside disordered eating, but not necessarily always. So what can an individual do to, to make sure that they are fueling themselves correctly, not just for their sport, but for their life as well? Yeah. So I guess the appetite, so intuitive eating, I think, relies, intuitive eating is an amazing thing that we can you know, connect with and that we can actively practice throughout our life as well it's I think it, it often gets like a really simplified kind of rap and I know that there's a previous podcast that touches on this as well where it's just listening to your hunger and your fullness and it's just so much more than that and I think that movement and exercise is a really good case here where connecting with our body is part of you know having a broader understanding so if we understand and we're able to connect with our body that broadly speaking is intuitive eating and it's setting us up for that fact 
So when we do an intense period of exercise, our body goes through this kind of catabolic state where it's in a stress phase. That's how we build stronger muscles. It's how we build fitness. It's how, you know, we, you know, why recovery and nutrition is important. So participating in some kind of movement or sport like that is such a privilege that we are giving our body that almost like a gift for its participation, we also want to gift it nutrition or nourishment to go alongside that. So connecting with our body is knowing that if I do exercise in the heat and it's elevating my heart rate a lot, I'm going to come out of it and my appetite's going to be really low. That doesn't mean that you don't need energy. It doesn't mean that your body is saying no. It's just saying, hey, I just went through something really stressful and I'm prioritizing other aspects physiologically right now, but I also need this energy. It's sort of like, you know, if you're trying to multitask and like the phone is ringing, but the stove has just caught on fire. It's not that you're not acknowledging that the phone is ringing. You'll, you'll get back to that call. It's just that something more important is going on in the body at that time. So I think that sometimes if we really cast a broad net around intuitive eating, it can sometimes leverage some of these disordered eating kind of traits. So if we are like, oh, but I'm listening to my hunger, more often than not in an eating disorder, our hunger is just so dysregulated that flatline, we would be like, I don't need any energy. But that's like, you know, that's, come about because we've disconnected from our body for so long so I think that primary principle there is are we connecting with our body or are we disconnecting from our body we know that it needs fuel we know that it needs energy we know that it needs pleasure and enjoyment from food are we doing that are we connecting with those more nuanced aspects of intuitive eating I think that nuance is really important. So I remember there was like sometime a year or two ago when intuitive eating became a little bit more well known. There was questions sort of raised in the, the fitness industry as, you know, is intuitive eating appropriate or relevant for, for athletes? I think because it was sort of broadly viewed as, you know, simply listening to hunger and fullness. Whereas as you say, it's far more about that. And it's not really even just about food either. It's about your relationship with yourself and acknowledging that, you know, you can choose intentionally to eat even in the absence of physical hunger cues and that could be considered a form of intuitive eating because you're actually are connected to your body and its needs there's something I've noticed with clients who are learning how to I feel like intuitive eating the idea of hunger and fullness that's more of an end stage as well you know it's not something that you're going to grasp immediately especially as you say if you have been out of um, connection with your body for a very long time I think an analogy that I came across one time was like imagine like constantly ringing um, your friend's been trying to call you and you never pick up the phone at some point they're going to stop ringing you and you're going to have to take matters into your own hands to get that connection with your friend back and it's kind of the same thing your body's like telling you it's hungry it's hungry you're ignoring it at some point it's going to stop <laughs> because it's not getting what it wants and it's going to be hard to recognize so um i think getting to grips with the fact that actually intuitive eating the process of it can involve eating when you're not hungry for um reasons that you know knowing that your body actually needs something that's a sign that you're doing you, you are practicing intuitive eating i think that's one common sort of misconception there the other thing being yes an athlete has to sort of 
maybe micromanage their nutrient intake to a certain degree, especially if they're doing like twice a day training sessions. But that doesn't mean that you can't plan and be conscious and still connect with your body and actually planning and making conscious choices and maybe following some structure can be in the service of intuitive eating in, in some instances. Um, so that's just something that I thought was like maybe important to touch on because I feel like one thing that really frustrates me is how sort of black and white everything is. Even with those examples that you were giving, okay, moving your body in a way that feels comfortable and enjoyable um, to you. I know that people will listen to that and they'll be like, well, I push myself in the gym and actually I don't like how it feels, but it's not harmful per se. That's just me working hard. But just because we're encouraging gentle movement and empowering enjoyable movement or the case would be I have to do exercises sometimes I don't particularly like but I do them anyway because they're conducive to my sport like that when it's not either or but what we find that in sporting culture I think primarily is that we do glorify the the hard things and the no pain no gain and then if we're seen to be encouraging you know maybe just go for a walk one day and enjoy that walk get outside in nature and you know take in your surroundings really connect like that suddenly means that we're saying that we shouldn't work hard and these attitudes are so polarized when really you know taking on board all of these approaches could be very beneficial. Maybe one day you will do a hard Muay Thai class and the next day you'll do yoga and a walk. You know, it's not either or, but I think what is important is that we speak to one side of things, the push, 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 more than the, the gentle encouragement and the downtime and the connection. And I think that that's what we're really missing. And I think that like factor of embodiment is pretty difficult to encourage in the athletic population when sometimes they are trying to push their performance to extremes, which may require a bit of discomfort. So how do we reconcile all of that? Mm -hmm. So many questions in one. Also shout out to all my former athletes listening to this who are going through a process of unlearning that stuff too, because that's that is tough. So I think when you're, when you're an athlete and you're really striving for performance, I think it's a really fascinating relationship with your body that you create. And I know if I draw on my own story, for me, there was no chat. There were no I mean, podcasts like, far on the horizon when I was a junior, but <coughs> there was no concept of connecting with your body at all. So it was just like, oh, you're experiencing lactic acid? <laughs> Keep pushing. Like you can run faster. You can be better. You're tired? Oh, is that a niggle? It'll go away. Whatever. Like it felt like that was the mentality and the message. So the fact that we're even having conversations around connection is bad. So I think as an athlete, you know what to do. You know how to push your body. You can appreciate that. That is a you know that is an aspect of body appreciation that you can do this cool powerful thing that maybe other people can't do or you know it's taken you a long time to get to that place amazing appreciate that so it can be framed in a way that that is body appreciation when you do connect and appreciate it it's not just a okay, how can I get best performance? I'm going to slowly morph my body into a robot and treat it as such. So I think there's moments for both. I, you know, I have, uh, so one of my, my 
good friends, uh, Katrina Bissett is the Australian 800 metre record holder. So top of her game, you can't get a faster 800 in Australia ever. And she speaks so openly about her mental health and how it's given her an ability to connect with her body in so many awesome ways, which has then freed up space and leveraged her ability to be able to push hard at training, to be able to work hard, knowing that she is fueled, knowing that she's doing both of these things. There is space for both under the banner of body appreciation. And I think that, you know, as that emerges, we need to, you know, at the moment, we need to look hard for athletes like that. They don't, you know, they're not necessarily the norm at the moment. But I really believe that in the future, if we encourage more of those spaces and we are having conversations where we we check in and, you know, we we appreciate all aspects of our body, the ability to push and the ability to rest and connect, that we will see more athletes speaking about that and role modelling how it can be done and how it looks other than just maybe former athletes like me, like, oh, we didn't have that language and now I'm not doing my sport. So um, I think as well, like whether it's eating disorders, whether it's the female athlete triad, whether it's relative energy deficiency in sport, asking ourselves, like, is this a rule? Is this something that I cannot break? Is this something rigid with no flexibility? Is this disconnecting from my body's needs? If the answer to that is yes, well, then, you know, that's a really great opportunity to talk to someone whatever it is, whether it's pushing through injury or fatigue or, you know, honestly, in a lot of those circumstances, I've found where athletes are pushing through and pushing through and pushing through and there is no off switch, it comes down to actually they're not enjoying the sport anymore and they just think that they need to be doing it or, you know, they're not enjoying that type of movement or training or whatever it is. And as you said, like do Muay Thai one day and do yoga the next. There's no hard and fast rule of how to, to do things. And if you step away from sport for two years, you can always come back. There are no, there are no rules around that. I think that's the, the funny paradox where when you're actually sort of more in tune with your body and better at listening to your body, I know that's a bit of a um, wishy-washy phrase, but the, the closer connection that you have to your body is very likely that you'll see your performance improve because yes, appreciate the fact that you can perform these amazing feats, but in order to continue to perform them or to even develop upon that performance, that requires downtime and rest as well. And when you can recognize the signs within your own body and attend to your needs, you're probably going to recover faster. You'll be able to fuel yourself more efficiently, and that's going to improve your performance. So it really is this like overall picture and I like that you mentioned um, rules as well and I tend to distinguish between rules and guidelines because again like structure can be helpful so a guideline for me may be okay I'm going to weight lift four days per week that's a general guideline I have a training program that's structured in that way so for the most part it's very likely that that's how the week will go however it's not a rule and if something 
crops up, if life is very busy or stressful, if I suddenly fall ill, I'm not going to train four times a week because I don't have to. It's just a general guideline that helps me, but it's not something that's inflexible. Um, so I think, again, because with a, a lack of nuance sometimes, it's like, what, so I don't have any structure, but I don't have any rules? It's like, no, there's a difference between helpful structure and actually a structure that constricts and, and refines you to, you know, to, to no extent as well, to, or to whatever um, extent. And one thing that I thought would be helpful to touch on before we wrap up is you mentioned, you know, former athletes as well. And I think that when individuals get to that stage where they recognize, you know what, like I can't continue on in this way. I actually have been neglecting myself, my body to some extent and begin the process of working on healing that relationship. They may notice that their physique changes over time and it's very common, I think, for not even just athletes, like even just, you know, people who have gone through that process of they did maintain a very lean, very muscular, whatever this quote unquote ideal physique is, and then decided to improve on their quality of life and their mental and physical well-being and notice that their body has changed. And they may be in this place where they can appreciate the positive side of things, but still grieve for their former body. So what would you recommend for someone in that position? First of all, acknowledging that bodies are meant to change across a life. So whether you're an athlete or you weren't, from your childhood to your adolescence, puberty happens and we talk about it and we have language for it and we set expectations People are prepared for that body change. We talk about it openly. And yet after that period of time, it's almost like we expect people to retain their 18-year-old bodies, whether they're athletes or not. When really every single time we go through a transition, every time we go through a relationship change, if we retire from sport, if we change our exercise needs, if our mental health state changes, anything, anything that changes in our life, our body is going to adapt and change with it too. So it's almost like if we were to expect and anticipate puberty happens, menopause happens, pregnancy can create body changes, but also a living, breathing organism with our body, it is meant to change. We are not meant to be the same size throughout our whole life. We might change our body drastically. And I... You know, I often talk about with my clients, like, what is a healthy weight? And we unpack that because it's not a number. It's not a BMI range. It's certainly not. BMI is, BMI is BS. And it's a place when you're actually able to eat intuitively, accept your body, to eat flexibly, to do all those things that we've talked about today. And then that is what your body will be. So you know, when, when you have a, like a drastic weight change, and often we see that in our former athletes when they change, um, I often see this in people who are weight suppressed. So it might mean that they were doing something that was controlling their natural body outside of what it would have been. So it might have been that their sport was suppressing their appetite in a way that was controlling their body composition. And then when they stop, they actually just gravitate to the body that their family members have. And that's totally, totally normal. I think there's really negative chat around 
former athletes' bodies, often, you know, with commentary teams or when they appear in the media 20 years after their sport and everyone's like, X, Y, Z, insert awful comments here. But really, like, as a culture, we're putting really unrealistic expectations on humans that their bodies wouldn't. Of course they would change. Like, you look at an athlete who was training 30 hours a week and then they're not. Like they look like the rest of us because they look, they're meant to look like the rest of us. Of course they are. They're not the superhuman perhaps that we had, you know, intended them to be. So my advice in those moments, I just want to, I guess, first of all, validate how tough that is to go through any kind of body change. It's really, really tough because it can, I think, unpack and, you know, explore who you think you are. I think when, um, particular movement or fitness or sport has been such a big part of your life and it was creating a particular body physique and you don't have it anymore it can challenge your sense of identity so it's not it's not a petty thing whatsoever it can run really deep Um, be patient with yourself in those moments so when you are grieving think of it as if you were grieving anything else in your life if you'd lost a pet and you were going through that grief process that's those emotions and that complexity and that layering of those emotions is what you're going to feel when you're going through a body transition as well in the society that we live in so give yourself that space be kind to yourself seek support if you need and you know you need to talk about it with someone who has body image counseling as part of their dietitian or psychology training or whatever it is um and also know that you know, those thoughts that you're having about your body don't have to connect then to the behaviours that you do. So when you're having really negative thoughts, it's really powerful to be able to sit with those thoughts and create a distance to them until they become less powerful. And when they become less powerful, there's less of an urge to act big on them. So, you know, I think the social conditioning that we all have is that when our body feels wrong for whatever it is, well, we're given this idea and this impression that we're invincible and we can control it and we can lose weight. And, but really like we can't, you know, I think we would have so much more success in the world or less eating disorders or whatever it is, if we just treated weight like shoe size or height, that it was just, is this thing that we have and it is what it is. And if we came to a place to accept it, I think that that would be really powerful. Yeah, I think you've sort of touched on the um, importance of like body image flexibility, especially in our modern day environment. And I know that there's some research looking into body image, like cognitive fusion, which suggests that it's not necessarily the presence of quote unquote negative thoughts that you have about yourself, but just how attached you are to those thoughts and how much they then dictate your behaviors. So I think it is really important to acknowledge that, you know what? Sometimes it's okay to not feel super great, you know, and that's probably very normal. And as long as it doesn't 
control what you do it doesn't you know it doesn't have to cause harm and you can learn to sit with those uncomfortable emotions and sort of understand why you feel that way the the things that are sort of triggering those feelings and then not act to alleviate them or to change yourself but actually just choose to act in a way that's in service of the life that you want to create for yourself and what you really care about um, so I think that's a really nice place to wrap up if anyone wants to learn more about you or sort of the work that you do where would be a good place for them to find out more so i am on twitter at georgie buckley underscore little less active and uh on instagram i am georgie buckley underscore dietitian i am also working with my amazing colleague dr zali yeager um, and we are developing an organization, a not-for-profit called the Body Confident Collective. So at Body Confident Collective. And we've got some really exciting body image related projects and advocacy work coming up, including some body confidence sport guidelines, which we want as many sporting organizations to take on. So um, watch this space for that kind of that project and more of that kind of work. You can always reach out um, if you need if you need to any direction on where to find clinicians or resources or anything like that I'm not going to reply straight away but I can can help in some way awesome thank you so much I hope you enjoyed that episode if you did feel free to share on Instagram and tag me at shannonbeer underscore check out the show notes to learn more about today's guest thanks so much for listening Until next time.